All right, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 7, which is a very interesting chapter, and I don't know if we'll get through it this evening, probably not, but it really begins our next major section. The idea of Christ being a high priest has been introduced for us uh, implicitly in chapter 2 and then uh, clearly, explicitly in chapter 5. He's, he's really picking up on what he taught in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, about Christ being our high priest. But while this is the main theme that runs all the way through the book of Hebrews, we're now into the meat of the book. And the meat of the book is chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 11 with the heroes of faith, chapter 12 with fixing our eyes on Jesus, and then chapter 13 with... Uh, practical exhortations, they're really kind of the conclusion of the book. The real heart of it is here, and it's a very important heart uh, because understanding what Christ is doing now at the right hand of God is every bit as important for us as understanding what He did at the cross. What Christ accomplished at the cross through His sacrifice paying the penalty for our sins, providing for us our so great salvation. That is a wonderful and a marvelous truth, and we can really study and delve into all of the things that relate to that the rest of our lives. But at some point, we have to move on beyond that, and we have to move on to the question of what is Christ doing today? And if you ask the average believer that question, they don't have a clue. And yet it's very important for us to understand what he's doing because what he's doing today, seated at the right hand of the Father, affects everything that we do, everything that we know and understand, and certainly the strength, the vitality, and the fruitfulness of our faith. So we're going to get into the seventh chapter. Just join me with a word of prayer before we once again start into our study of this marvelous and wonderful book. Our Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege for us to gather ourselves together this evening and to have the opportunity to open the Word of God, to even have a Bible in our own language, to have the opportunity to meet together without fear of retribution, at least at this time, uh, to have your Word uh, expounded and explained, knowing that God the Holy Spirit ultimately is the opener of our eyes and ears, of our hearts and minds, and so we look to his guidance, direction, and instruction as we once again get into this wonderful book that we're studying. We pray that you will strengthen our faith, that you will give us endurance and tenacity for the time in which we live, give us wisdom and guidance for our daily decisions, and help us to watch over and care for one another because this is one of the greatest strengths that we have in the body of Christ. To this end, we commit the evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to warm my throat here for a minute. <clears throat> so if you'll notice on your notes, we're now in a section where we look at a superior priesthood. You'll remember that the author has made a point up to the end of chapter 6, and that is the superiority of Jesus Christ. Uh, we saw at the very beginning he is superior to the prophets. That would have been quite an argument to first century Jews. And then we learned that he's greater than angels. That would have really baffled them because 
in early Judaism, uh, there was a very high regard for angels and a lot of teaching about angels, some of it good, some of it not good. Um, some even came to the point of almost worshiping angels. Um, Christ is superior to the angels. Then he takes the step of saying that in chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. Uh, we know that the early Jewish religious leaders had a reverence for Moses above almost everything. And yet here the author is telling them that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. And he's building a case for the ultimate supremacy, the ultimate superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can hold a candle to him. No figure of scripture, no institution, not the priesthood, not Old Testament Israel, not the law of Moses, nothing can compare. And we just sang the song, my hope is only Jesus. And that's really what this book is all about. And so we're going to get into the book and we're going to look at the superiority of Jesus Christ as the author now takes us in the direction of what he said at the beginning of chapter 6, that we need to go on to perfection. Literally, it says we need to be carried or born on to perfection. And the reason he says that is because only the Word of God can do it. I just had a little quote here. Let's see if I can find it. I thought I wouldn't use it, but I think now I will. Uh, I found this quote by R.C. Sproul. Uh, he is a Calvinist, so obviously I have that in disagreement with him, but I can't disagree with what he says here. The greatest weakness in the church today is that no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. You think of all the problems that we have in the church today and just dwell for a moment on that statement. The greatness, greatest weakness that the church has today is that no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in programs, in methods, in techniques, or in persons. That's not where the power comes from. He says, everywhere but where God placed it in His Word. He alone can change lives for eternity, and that power is vested in the Scriptures. So the author has challenged his listeners and challenged us that we need to move away from the milk and get into the meat. We need to move on to maturity. Remember the word perfection as it's used in Hebrews is not speaking of sinlessness, it's talking about reaching the goal that is set for you. And so we're going to start with that by recognizing in verses 1 through 10 that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Uh, he gives us three reasons why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham, of course, probably holding either first or second place in the mind of first century Jews, possibly behind Moses, uh, but in the mind of many, he would be first place. To say that Jesus Christ, or that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, sets the stage for him to say that Jesus Christ is greater than Melchizedek. So he starts out by saying, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem of course later became Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God. It's very interesting that he uses this phrase. In the Hebrew, it's El Elyon. We'll see that in just a moment. Priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that is Melchi, my king, Tzedek, or also being king of Salem would mean king of peace. So as the king of righteousness and the king of peace, obviously a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now you have to hold your place here and go with me back to Genesis 14 because we misunderstand some of the points that the author is making because we look at it as modern Bible readers instead of the way the recipients of the letter would have seen it. Genesis chapter 14. You remember the story, and I'm not going to go through the whole section, but the uh, kings come down from the north, uh, and they fight with a lot of the kings in the valleys. By the way, it's very interesting. Uh, again, we don't have time to look into it all, but when they talk about the Zeboim and the Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Emim, these were, uh, how shall I say it? The Hebrew words actually translate very, very strangely. Uh, one of them means the long-necked people. One of them means the people who flit here and there. Um, I can't remember what all, all of the various uses were, but the belief is that many of these were Nephilim, that these were actually Nephilim armies. And you'll remember that while the Nephilim uh, died out in the flood, Genesis 6 makes it clear that there was apparently a second invasion and there were Nephilim afterwards, David, of course, and his armies putting an end to a lot of them. But that's just a side note for later on. Anyway, they come and they take Sodom and Gomorrah, and with them, of course, they take Lot uh, and uh, his daughters. So a Hebrew escapes from the slaughter in verse 13 and tells Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Anair, and they were allies with Abraham. Verse 14, when Abraham heard his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 servants. This is about 318 servants against about 30 to 35,000 enemy forces. God always likes to win his battles using weak and humanly puny instruments. He divided his forces against them at night and attacked them, and you'll remember that he won the victory. Verse 16 says that he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now, this is very important because verse 17 says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, which is called the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him. So try to picture this in your mind. Abraham comes back triumphantly. He has brought back the spoils. He has delivered Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that survived. He's brought them all back. He has almost like a triumphal entry. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him, and then someone cuts right in front of him. You really have to kind of get that graphic of an idea. Melchizedek was delivering Abraham from a great spiritual failure. Had Abraham received the spoils of the victory as the king of Sodom is about to suggest, 
It would have been a great moral and a great spiritual defeat for him. In the same way that oftentimes for you and I, when we turn away from faith in the Lord and we try to rely on some human scheme, some human plan, or some human provision to be our sustenance, it is a tremendous spiritual defeat. And so Melchizedek zips right in front of him, and we have never read anything about him. There's nothing about him in Scripture until now. In three verses, we get all the historical information we're going to get on this man. So read with me. Then, then is important. It's a time word, and it indicates that right as the king of Sodom is going out, Melchizedek, <coughs> king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest. I'll point out to you, this is the first time we have the word priest occur in Scripture. Uh, you have probably heard me refer before to the law of first mention. And the law of first mention has a lot of interesting implications, and it was actually used by the rabbis in the time that this book was written uh, for some very interesting interpretations, and I'll illustrate those in a moment as we go along. So he brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Remember when I emphasized that in Hebrews 7? This is the first time El Elyon occurs in the Scripture. It sp speaks of God as supreme over all. He is superior to everything. What is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make about the Lord Jesus Christ? He's emphasizing His superiority to everything. And what we need to understand is that God Most High here is a reference to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who later would come in human flesh and die on the cross in our place. So he says, verse 19, He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. In other words, Abram belongs to El Elyon, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. It's not Abraham here who's possessor of heaven and earth, it's God. And God who possesses heaven and earth, I remember the scenario, Abraham is coming back with all the spoils of the victory. It would have been unbelievable riches, uncountable treasures that he has now brought back from this battle. By right of victory, those spoils belong to him. And he is reminded, both by symbolism and by words, from Melchizedek, very briefly, the way a Hebrew would say it, by the way, I want to remind you that you belong to the God who possesses heaven and earth. Kind of see the point. It's just kind of a very gentle nudge. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you serve. Why the bread and wine? Well, obviously it was a preview of what we celebrate as we celebrate the Lord's table and remember that He is the total provision for our so great salvation. And Melchizedek blesses him and then says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. It was right for Melchizedek, the priest of the day, the servant of God, a king and a priest, by the way, it's the first time king and priest are ever used together. A king and a priest to receive those tithes 
because it was God who gave Abraham the victory and the tithes were being given to Melchizedek as a representative of God. You see the point? Now the king of Sodom elbows his way into center stage in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Here was the test. Here was the temptation. Abraham could have received wealth unbelievable. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high. Notice how this keeps coming up. The one who possesses heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a saddle strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. In other words, I want my story throughout all history to reflect that my reliance was on God and not on man. That what I do, I do out of faith and out of faithfulness and in service to Him. And in total trust that He and He alone is going to provide my every need. He says, I will not take any of it except, verse 24, what the young men have eaten, they obviously would have eaten some of the spoils, and the portion of the men that went with me, Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Because of Melchizedek's intervention and his ministry to Abraham at this point, Abraham was delivered from what would have been a great spiritual defeat and actually uh, received something in return, which you don't see until you read into chapter 15, after these things. After these things, by the way, always connects what went before with what's coming after. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. If you were in Abraham's place and you had just defeated five great armies or four great armies, and obviously there would have been forces from them scattered everywhere, and you have how many men? 318 men. And you turn down wealth unbelievable a pile of treasure like you have probably never seen. What would you be thinking about? Those scattered forces might rally and attack again. What am I going to do if they come back after me? And if I have need, what could I have done with all that wealth? So the Lord appears to Abram, and in a very brief statement, I am your shield, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. I am your exceedingly great reward. Forget about that tiny little pittance of all of that vast treasure that you got in the spoils. Forget it all, I'm going to take care of you. And Abraham, of course, was delivered. Going back now, oh, I should point out one more thing. In this only record we have of Melchizedek, we have no record of his birth and no record of his genealogy. Why is that important? What does the word Genesis mean? It means the beginning. 
And from Genesis, the beginning, we get genealogy, which means lineage. What do we find all the way through the book of Genesis? Lineage, genealogy. It's very important. Here we have a man whose lineage is not recorded. That's important from the standpoint of rabbinical interpretation. Go with me back to Hebrews chapter 7. And so he speaks about Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. We, we know that he was greater than Abraham by several metrics. The fact that he blessed Abraham made him greater. The fact that Abraham gave him a tithe of everything made him greater. The fact that he was a king and a priest made him greater. But we get down to that verse in verse 3 which says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Many people take this to mean that Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, what we call a Christophany. I'm convinced that the text disproves that for several reasons. First of all, how does the author conclude that he's without father or without mother? Because he has no genealogical record. I go back to that principle of the law of first mention, the way it was interpreted by the rabbis, whatever is not written never happened. Now they abuse this many, many times. But in their thinking, if it's not written, if it's not recorded, it didn't happen. That's not really what the author is saying and we can see that simply by looking carefully at the words. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, and I'm going to put in parentheses here, as far as the scriptural record is concerned. That's what he's actually saying. Then notice, but made like the Son of God. You don't make the Son of God like the Son of God. The little phrase made like is a word that actually means to make a facsimile or a copy. It's afo uh, moyao is the word and it means to produce a facsimile to make a copy, basically an imitation. Not only does it show that Melchizedek was not Christ pre-incarnate, but the perfect tense of the verb is used when it says that he was made like, the perfect tense indicates that which happens in the past and continues in the presence. So as far as the record is concerned, we are left with a picture of Melchizedek as a king-priest remaining forever. Do you get the point that I'm making? It doesn't mean this guy lived forever. It simply means that he was a part of a priesthood that predated the Levitical priesthood and for the record, as it sits, with only the introduction of him in three sentences, three verses of Scripture, we are left with a picture of a guy who is still doing the same thing. That's really all that it means. But he wants us to understand how great Melchizedek is. Notice in verse 4. Consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Why the tithe? Well, later the people brought their tithes where? 
They brought them to the tabernacle and then later to the temple. And the tithe was what? An offering of gratitude to God. In the same way that in our local churches, as we gather, we give. Paul tells us the right attitude we should have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We don't give grudgingly or out of necessity. We give freely, voluntarily, because why? God loves a cheerful giver. And of course, everybody that knows anything about the original word there knows that it is the word we get hilarious from. And so some people get a little bit goofy by talking about when you give, you should be hilarious. Um, the idea is just be cheerful in what you give. Um, I, I always uh, have told people in the churches as I've pastored, you give as you're led by the Lord. And if it's not the Lord leading you, don't give. Um, back when we were at Harlem Park, by the time we left there, we had a church of about 350, 400 people. We had many, many people coming in every morning, Sunday morning. I would always make it clear when we took the offering, if you're here as a visitor, we ask that you not give. We're here to give to you. You be our guest, receive what we have to offer you, which, of course, begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are members, if you are led to give, give. But I always would refer to the 2 Corinthians 8 passage. This is how we give. By the way, that is not tithing. Tithing means, the word tithe means one-tenth. A lot of churches still go by the system of tithing. In fact, some of them even get to the point where they check with their members and they check their income and they find out, are you giving 10%? I just heard of a case of that recently. Someone said, if you don't start giving more money to the church, you can no longer be a member. That's bribery, blackmail, highway robbery, whatever you want to call it. Same thing happened to Nan's folks when she was young. No, it has to be voluntary. So even in the sense of the tithe, people say, well, I tithe my 10%. Well, you might be surprised that the Old Testament children of Israel tithed 30% per year. The temple tithe was just one of three different tithes that they gave. So if you're going to tithe, you want to use that as a standard, give 30%. I like the New Testament model a lot better. Give as the Lord has prospered you. If you're not prospering, he doesn't expect you to starve your children or walk instead of being able to drive. But as the Lord has prospered you, let each one give not grudgingly or of necessity, and so forth. So, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, an offering to God. Melchizedek being the priest, he was a go-between. You'll remember in Hebrews 5, we saw that the priest is chosen among men and appointed in things that pertain to God. He is, in a sense, the mediator. Not the ultimate mediator, who is Jesus Christ, but he represents God to men, and he represents men to God. How does he do that? He represents God to men in his purity, holiness, and truth. Those are the things he's supposed to teach. He represents men to God in taking their sins, their cares, and their burdens, and interceding for them to God. So he is a go-between between God and men. 
Verse 5 says, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, even though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So God elevated the Levitical tribe to the position of the priestly tribe. And as the priestly tribe, they were to receive tithes from their brethren. By the way, being a Levite, you, you couldn't uh, own personal property. Uh, you lived a life of complete faith, but you were always taken care of. You didn't have an allotment among the tribes. When you look at the allotment of the tribes, all of the other tribes had an allotment. The children of Levi did not have an allotment. Why? Because they're priests. As priests, they're to live by faith. But there were priestly cities and centers where they lived and they were supplied. And so their life was to illustrate really what it means to live by faith, to be totally and totally dependent on the provision of the grace of God. And if you follow it all the way back to their forefather, Abraham, as he stood before the king of Sodom, you begin to understand why Melchizedek's intervention was so important. Because God was trying to establish from the very beginning in Abraham, who is called by Paul in Romans 4, the father of the faithful or the father of all who believe, a very important principle. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. We are to live in dependence, not on men, but on God. Yes, we have to have jobs. Yes, we have bills that we have to pay. In fact, our modern world has made it increasingly difficult to live by faith. Because the tentacles of control and intrusion uh, permeate every area of our lives. Everything that you and I do, everything that we buy, unless we barter or pay cash, is known. And we live basically in a surveillance state right now. I know people don't like to hear it. I don't like to say it. But... Everything you do online is known. I've got a phone on right now. Everything I'm saying right now is being recorded. Yeah. I know that. And it's a horrible way to have to live, but it's the way we live. And it makes it all the more difficult, but not impossible, to live by faith. Yes, we have to pay our bills. Yes, we have to pay our taxes. Romans 13 tells us, pay taxes you know, we have to do it. We are not taxed as badly as some people elsewhere in the world and as others elsewhere in history have been. Uh, we, we have not yet gotten to the crushing burden. I'm sure if those in positions of control have their way, we'll get there, but we're not there yet. So the point is, do your duty, fulfill your obligations, your responsibilities, but don't let that stop you from, number one, living by faith. It's God who provides us the strength, the skill, the ability, the opportunity to have a job. Uh, it's him who makes that job successful so that we can continue to receive our uh, wages and pay our bills and so on and so forth. And ultimately, we thank him that he has provided the avenue and the opportunity for those things. But ultimately, we don't look to the world, we don't look to society, we don't look to our politicians, we don't look to our employer, we look to God. He is the ultimate provider 
and protector of his people. And by the way, it would be a good thing for each one of us to personally claim the promise to Abraham because we're his children. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. In the time that we're living in, we have to have confidence in that. Nothing can touch us, but by his permission, I'm going to be teaching at Living Truth on Sunday morning. And as the allotment came to me, because I just pick up where Pastor Chris left off last time, I'm going to be teaching on John chapter 11. And John chapter 11, as you know, is where the story of Lazarus getting sick. Mary and Martha send for Jesus to come, and he doesn't come. And there are five questions that the entire chapter bring up, and they're questions we ask all the time. And they begin with, why is it when we pray it seems like God doesn't hear? Why does God seem to ignore our burdens and our pressures and our griefs and our sorrows? Why does God allow evil men to oppress God's people? All of those questions come out in that chapter, and there's a beautiful answer to all those questions, and you'll have to listen to the class when it gets online to find the answer, but it is a beautiful answer. God may wait, but he's never late. His timing is perfect. His provision is perfect. And we only miss it when we fail to walk by faith. So this is the real thrust, I think, of what our author here is trying to get us to. So those who are the sons of Levi, verse 5, receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, notice he whose genealogy is not derived from them, who's he talking about? He's talking about Melchizedek. What is he implying? He's implying that he had a genealogy, it was just not in the record. He whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. You have to be a pretty great person. I know that it's common for us to say to one another, God bless you. When Melchizedek said, God bless you, it was a blessing. We kind of use it as a trite phrase. Melchizedek used it as the conferring of divine blessing on Abraham. To do that, you have to be greater than the person you're blessing. Sometimes I play around with people because they'll say, God bless you, and I say, oh, wow, you're greater than me. And of course they go, what? I didn't say that, and I'm just, I, you know, I, I say, look, I'm just joking and pulling your leg and having a little bit of fun. Verse 7 says, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better or the greater, Melchizedek then being superior to Abraham. And here, verse 8, mortal men receive tithes, speaking of the sons of Levi, but there he receives them, of whom it is written, written that he lives. That comes from the phrase, he remains a priest forever, or he continues as a priest forever. <clears throat> Even Levi, verse 9 says, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. 
for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You can see by reading through this that there's a whole lot of logic that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And that's because, number one, we're not Jews. Number two, we haven't been to synagogue school. And number three, we're not familiar with rabbinical thinking. But never forget, Paul, again, I'm convinced he wrote the book of Hebrews. I think the evidence is irrefutable, was trained as a rabbi. He knew all of the methods of rabbinical interpretation. And he's using them now because he's writing this letter, which you and I find difficult, but the original recipients would have had very little difficulty in understanding what he meant. He's talking their language. My task is just to try to take what was very simple to them, but very difficult sometimes for us, and make it a little bit more easily understood. He says, verse 9, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11 brings us to the beginning of the conclusion. Therefore, how many times have we seen that little word in this book? And I think I kind of threw out a challenge. I think Holly actually followed up on it where I said, look at every therefore in Hebrews and see what comes before and what comes after because what comes before is building the case and the therefore says, now I'm going to give you the conclusion. And if you look carefully, you can follow every therefore and you can actually say, what is the conclusion at this point? And you can write it out and it is very helpful. So what is the conclusion? Therefore, if perfection, once again, perfection referring to attaining the goal, sometimes it's used for attaining the goal through salvation by grace through faith. Sometimes it's used for attaining the goal by spiritual growth to maturity. Sometimes it's used for attaining the goal in the sense of fulfilling the plan of God for your life. But just bear in mind that it's not talking about sinlessness. It's talking about, in this case, being made right with God. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Now we're talking not only about the priesthood, but the law of Moses as well. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? I want you to just consider for a minute if you could try to put yourself back in the position of these people. They believe that Israel was called as the elect nation. They were given the law of Moses. The law of Moses was administered to them through the priesthood and they believed that was the way it was going to be forever. Nothing was going to change. By the way, a little thought to throw in with the idea of perfection, it doesn't change. When it says of Christ that having become perfect, it means perfect forever in the sense that he became our Savior through the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, and that is never, ever going to change. He is going to remain our Savior, our King, and our Priest forever and ever. However, the law of Moses, the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood had to pass away. 
How could we, if we were students of Jewish scripture, speaking about the Old Testament, how could we know that that change was going to take place? If we were good students of the Old Testament, we should have been prepared for the fact that things are about to change. How could we do that? I'm just going to give you two examples. Number one, Psalm 110 verse 4. It's quoted repeatedly in Hebrews. Psalm 110 verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When was that spoken? Well, it was written in the Psalms. Who wrote it? Well, David wrote it. David was under what? The Levitical priesthood. But David is declaring that there is a priest coming that is going to be a priest forever. What would be our logical conclusion then? There's going to come a point in time when the Levitical priesthood is going to pass away. Right? It's, it's going to be gone. A second argument. As a Jew living in the Old Testament economy, you were under what kind of a covenant? The Old Covenant. That's why we call it the Old Testament. The Old Covenant meaning the Law of Moses. Now, if you go back to the beginning of that covenant, God said, if you do this, then I will do this. If you keep my law, then I will lead you into the land and bless you. And what does that little word if imply? Conditional. It's conditional. God makes some covenants unconditional. He says, I will. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant was founded on God calling Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea, and he said, I will bless you, and I will make of you a great nation, and so on and so forth. That's unconditional. But we have even a stronger case in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And this is where the prophet Jeremiah prophesies in anticipation of the new covenant. If you're under the covenant of Moses, it was never called the old covenant. It was always called the covenant of Moses. But as soon as Jeremiah penned the words in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant that I made with them. Because this, this covenant, I will write my law in their hearts and they will be my people. I will be their God. Their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. In other words, it was going to be a completed covenant where the old covenant was always attempting to be made right. Fresh sacrifices every day, fresh sacrifices every year, always having to come again and again and again instead of, as you and I have it, being made right with God at a moment of time through faith in Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, therefore His laws have been written in our heart. A new creature is created. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And all of those things and our eternal salvation and eternal security is done. There's no need to improve it. There's no need to try to secure it. It's a finished thing. Such freedom and such confidence and such hope and assurance that we have that they did not have. So it's evident here 
that the Lord Jesus coming as a priest after the order of Melchizedek had a great uh, thing to accomplish in bringing perfection. Verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, that is from Levi to the order of Melchizedek, of necessity there's also a change of law. If you're going to change the covenant, you have to change it all. And there's going to be a change of the law. And the change of the law is no longer, if you, then I will. The change of law is, if you believe, then you have eternal life. Essentially, the gospel is the law of the church age. Verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken, Jesus Christ, belongs to another tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah from which no man has officiated at the altar. You couldn't even do it. It would have been a violation of the covenant. Verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek, not Melchizedek, but in his likeness, the likeness being the record that we have of him in Genesis 14, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Why does he have an endless life? Because he's God in the flesh. The person of Jesus Christ, perfect God, perfect man, united together. By the way, many times we don't think of this, united together forever. Did you ever stop and think that when Jesus Christ stepped down from heaven and took on human flesh, he would be a man throughout all eternity? A man in a glorified body, of course, but still, I see even in that a willingness to sacrifice on our behalf. He was willing to do that for you and I. Verse 17, for he testifies... You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18 says, On the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment, change of priesthood, change of covenant, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8.3? What the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He judged sin in the flesh. The law was always the promise of, if you, then I, in the gospel, we have the promise, I have done it, it is finished, believe it. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The rending of the veil in the temple from top to bottom essentially declared to the whole world, to all who believe, access to God is freely given. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a pastor. You don't have to go through some human mediator. You go directly into the presence of God and meet Him face to face. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. And yet, unfortunately, we take advantage of it all too seldom. I'm going to end right there uh, because I want to go back and hit on some of the high points when we meet next week. But you can go through your notes, particularly starting on page 42. Uh, he begins to talk about what Jesus Christ has accomplished. 
and how he is a reflection of Melchizedek. And I'll conclude with just this statement. Not only is Christ the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, but each and every one of us are priests of the same order. What does that tell us? If we are priests, and you can check out 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, where he talks about our priesthood. It's one of our three ministries. Remember that each of us is an ambassador, each of us is a minister, and each of us is a priest. That tells us that God has a plan for us throughout all eternity. How are we going to be serving Him? We can't even fully anticipate or understand at this point. But what's more important than that expectation is this. We are to be priests here and now. What is our job? What does a priest do? A priest is ordained from among men to represent God to men and to represent men to God. How do we represent God to men? By His holiness, His grace, His truth, that is the picture that we portray to men of God. How do we represent men to God? We take their burdens, their cares, their sorrows, and we carry them in prayer to the God who hears, to the God who is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. I'm going to leave it there and we'll pick it up next week at the same time, same place here.